Few journalists had a better upfront seat during Donald Trump's four years in office than Michael Bender. As the White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Bender covered Trump's 2016 campaign for president and then his presidency, breaking big stories along the way and winning awards. Now Bender has written a book called Frankly, We Did Win This Election, which chronicles the wild, crazy last year of Trump's term, complete with a day-by-day blow at the president's efforts to overturn the results of the election. We'll talk to Bender about his book and Trump's futile efforts to reinstall himself as president on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So the Trump book blitz is underway. Michael Bender is seems to be the first out of the block with his uh, great book. Frankly, we did win this election, but there's more. Michael Wolf has landslide. Um, Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker of the Washington Post have a book out. We'll be talking to them in a few weeks, and then of course. Bob Woodward has got one coming. So uh, with, Bob, with Bob Costa, by the with, way, with Bob Costas, yes. Um, so it looks like the final days of the Trump presidency is going to be among the best chronicled last days of uh, a presidential term in quite some time, at least since um, the final days of Richard Nixon and the. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein book by the same time. And Mike, just a quick fact check, just because I, I want to make sure we get it right, that the title of the book is, frankly, we did win this election, the inside story of how Trump lost. So just just to make <laughs> right. sure yes. we're all yes. on the same page, he <laughs> yes. did not win the election. We don't want to be spreading disinformation about the election. <laughs> right. And get yeah. taken down by Facebook and Twitter if we... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Frankly, yes, the, he did. He did title. not win the election. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So just um, uh, just wanted to get that off the off my chest. Right. Yeah. But it is amazing that I mean, I think that, you know one thing that leaps through when you read this book is Trump keeps insisting this nonsense and. For the most part, people gently nod and, you know, yes, Mr. President, we understand where you're coming from. But with few exceptions, Bill Barr being one, Pat Cipollone being another, the the former White House counsel, people did not stand up to him and tell him, no, Mr. President, you're wrong. You lost. Deal with it. Yeah, there was a, a a little bit of that in the book. I mean, Rona McDaniel, who was the uh, chairman well, she of the doesn't uh, go RNC, along. yeah, she no, but she does. She does say when he wants to put out this, you know, bogus claims of of massive election fraud in Michigan, she says, "I'm not doing that. It's wrong. It's not true. It's crazy." So when they're pushed to the absolute limit. They will speak up. And I think one of the things that's fascinating about this book is that the people, some of the people around Trump in those last days were actually afraid of what Trump was going to do. 
yeah. the, really people, um, the members of the deep state, but people who were in very, very senior positions, um, notably uh, Mark Milley, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who is getting a lot of airtime these days because um, I think he was genuinely terrified at the end that Trump's desperate attempts to hold on to uh, power were, uh, were going to lead to either, you know, a war with Iran, because I think there was some talk about about that maybe as, a, as an attempt to defer, deflect attention away <laughs> from the election, or even um, in the book by... Uh, Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker, that is uh, that has also come out, and as you pointed out, we'll be interviewing them as well in a, in a couple of weeks, potentially even seizing power in a coup. Right, but um, it wasn't just the deep state people who were freaking out. Pompeo, the Secretary of State, Trump's own Secretary of State, says at one point the crazies have taken over after the election. So even he was worried. About, about what some of these Trump acolytes who are getting installed in key positions, uh, particularly at the Pentagon, might end up doing. And Milley's fear probably began ratcheting up in the summer of 2020 when the Floyd protests were going on, during which time Trump both suggested that army troops should be called in to shoot upon protesters and uh, called for the execution for treason of whoever leaked the fact that he had been um, taken down into a secure bunker when the protests were at their peak. So so Milley was already kind of, his antenna were already up for, shall we say, some of the uh, slightly more coup efforts that, <laughs> that Trump was, you know, was nosing his way towards. Is that, is that a word? I, it's, it, it, I, is I, I just, it is now. It is now. You know, Coined the, 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 yeah. the, the, the Milley stories reminded me, uh, back in 2016 during the campaign, I remember hearing about, you know, high-level military brass kind of joking among themselves a little bit about, you know, sort of gallows humor about Trump and what would happen if he became president. This was around the time when Trump was talking about bringing back torture, talking about like not just executing um, terrorists, but their families. And I remember them talking about, well, you know, maybe they'll, you know, maybe we'll have to deal with a coup. But they were joking about it. It was it was lighthearted. And you imagine all these years later, you know, what started as a joke, you know, became all too real. And it it's, tells you something about the journey we've been on for the last four years. But look, the, this, it is important. This isn't just for podcasters to have things to talk about. Donald Trump may run again in 2024, and he continues to have the rock-solid support of, of his base and four years after he took office, the um, institutions of democracy are not as strong as they were when he began. So the consequences and the stakes are high. Yeah. And Trump is probably to this day out there working the phones, calling state elected officials all over the country, encouraging them to kind of continue to push the fact that he won the election. Just yesterday, I believe, the leader of the Arizona Senate called for a, a new election in 2020 to uh, and, and that the Biden electors that were uh, elected out of that state were not legitimately in place. So he hasn't stopped and he still has a very sizable number of elected officials or top kind of operatives in the Republican Party who are completely in his thrall. 
Well, you know, look, my only pushback on that is, you know, yet when push came to shove and um, the leaders of the Republican Party had to do something, for the most part, they did not. That's correct. Pence didn't go along with it. Barr didn't go along with it. Mitch McConnell didn't go along with it. You know, the guardrails, as strained as they were, and perhaps pushed to the limits, but they did hold, and that should give us at yeah. least some small confidence that they, you know... That, they'll uh, continue they, to. That they'll continue to. But, but there's still, they're still a crazy car yes. careening towards them and on, right. on the regular. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, lots to talk about with Michael Bender, so let's get to it. now have with us Michael Bender, senior White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election. Uh, Michael, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So congrats on the book. Great read. Uh, So much to talk about here. But I want to start out with uh, you, like other of the many book authors about the end of Trump's presidency, did get the unique opportunity to sit down with the former president in writing this Mm -hmm. book. I think two sessions for three hours. Uh, You apparently Mm -hmm. got him to talk to you quite frankly about the Mm -hmm. results of the election. Good thing he was frank about it in telling you how he won. Tell us what it was like to talk to Trump during those uh, those two sessions you had, in which I gather he continued to insist that, frankly, he did win the election. Uh, that is a, a, the correct assumption here. And, um, and yes, the, the, the trend held up for both interviews. Almost every question I asked him came back. He turned it around to missing ballots in Detroit, the trucks of ballots in Georgia, conspiracies in Arizona, you know, kind of take your pick. And literally almost every question I asked. So it was sort of surprising that he wanted me to come down for a second time. But what happened was that we had reached the end of our first interview. And this is actually kind of interesting. I had to interview Trump in Trump Tower as a candidate in the Oval Office on Air Force One. And he all, and all the, every time I interviewed him, it always lasted longer, which was very deliberate on his part. He wanted the reporters to leave the meeting feeling like it went so well, it was, an, it went an hour instead of a half an hour, it went, you know, all this extra time. But when I went down the first time, he, he cut it off because Biden was speaking that night. It was the anniversary of uh, the COVID lockdowns. And he really wanted to see the speech, which, you know, I guess any, any former president would have wanted to do, but it, it struck me that, that Trump really wanted to see what, how Biden was gonna handle that moment. And we've been talking about Bill Barr and him quitting. So he asked me to come back down a second time uh, but then I got down there and it just, we had lost a thread or something because he did not want to talk about Barr anymore. And just, again, was the, was all of the same answers about, you know. So two questions. I mean, one is, you know, I, I, I assume you would gently point out to him that everything he was telling you about the missing ballots and, you know, other uh, fra- supposed fraudulent attempts were not true. How would he respond when you would point that out? And then sort of secondly, more broadly, why is he talking to you at all? He knows yeah. you're not going to buy this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know what you've written. Why, why is he bothering? So the first thing, the, the answer to the, to the first question is, I did not get into a debate with 
Trump. I, I, I definitely did not. I, I've, I've interviewed him enough and been around him enough to know that he's going to um, withdraw if not if not leave if there is a if he feels like he's being pushed if he feels like there's a confrontation. My what I what I want to do with with Donald Trump when I interview him is is keep him talking. And so when he would bring this stuff up and I, yes, I gently tell him is the right way to to describe that. Actually, is yeah, well, I, I don't think that's the case, sir. But back to this, you know. The scene about in, in Battle Creek on this, you know, and what he would do, he did ask me at one point. He's like, "Well, well, do you think there was like you know widespread fraud?" I can't remember exactly what the qu the question was, but I said, "No, no, sir, I don't think that's the case." And then he would turn to his aide who is there with him, right? And but you do, right? And of course, the aide is a yes, you know. I, I, who was the aide who was there? Uh, Jason Miller, oh, who you know, okay. was, you yeah. know, there are legitimate <laughs> questions here, and you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Isn't that been, Professional so. yes, ma'am. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So why is he talking to us? I mean, in, there's there's two reasons here. One is the big bigger picture uh, of like sort of Trump's unique, you know, media genius here, which is is to stay in the headlines. He wants to be talked about, and and I really do think that a bad headline for him is better than no headline. I, I think that is the big part of it. He and he does think like he he's going to take his shots to get his message in about the stolen election uh, and i mean here we are spending the first few minutes of still of this podcast talking about it but there's also a, a, a smaller piece of this too and a very also equally trumpian piece is that he's talking to everyone i think basically everyone who's asked except one author bob woodward that's right yes i mean he's still so pissed about that about those bob woodward details from 2020 I, it's my reporting that he has that part of him is it, this is to stick it to bob woodward and do interviews with everybody else. <laughs> but Michael, there's there's another, there's a third reason as to why uh -huh. Donald Trump took a shine to you, which you reveal in your book, which is that he mm -hmm. loved your hair. Yeah, I mean, this is really the, it's really the heart of our my relationship with Donald Trump. I, I mean, I, I, I know you're, a, you're an incredibly skilled reporter, but great reporters use whatever tradecraft they can. And and by the way, for the listeners who can't see this, he does have a lustrous reddish brown mop of hair that's really quite magnificent. Which, Thank you, Dan. which I think uh, Trump uh, and Trump is obsessed with good hair. I wonder what the psychology. I wonder what the psychology is there. I just took it as a as a deep compliment from someone who spent so much time on his own hair. Uh, I mean, I, I took him at his word. I thought it was, I thought it was like as good a compliment as I could get from Donald Trump. And it is, it, it really is the kind of, like the, it's not even really a joke. I mean, the, the crux of our relationship, I mean, is the thing he brings up with me almost all the time. And, and at one point, effectively, it offered me the press secretary job. I mean, not in a real way, but, you know, a, the president of the United States says uh, that you should be press secretary in a gaggle of reporters on Air Force One. You know, I mean, he's, it's, it's his own sort of, way of trying to get in my head as well you know so when he he's he has called me out by name uh, and attacked this book which we could talk about but uh you know that's i was very um relieved that he didn't uh, disparage my hairdo because then i know that things would really be uh you know a, a problem between the two of us so let, let's do talk about the, the the way he's attacked the book there's there's one anecdote in the book that seems to have really gotten under his skin and he he mm -hmm. threatened maybe to sue you claimed it was defamatory it didn't stop you mm -hmm. from publishing it why don't you tell us what it was and why you weren't worried about his his threats yeah this has gotten a lot of attention this is the scene in from uh, 2018 when 
John Kelly, his chief of staff at the time, and him are over in Europe for a World War I anniversary. And John Kelly finds himself having to kind of give a very top-level history of who the, who's on which side of World War I um, and how that kind of led into World War II, at which point Trump wants to debate him on, about the merits of, of Adolf Hitler, which uh, obviously takes John Kelly by surprise, as it would just about anyone, including me, when I heard this for the first time. And you know the net effect is, is is Kelly telling him this is not do not say this ever again right there Hitler did not do anything good there there is no good side of Hitler right there is and uh, you know this isn't a debate um, which is a, a pretty striking thing for uh, someone to have to uh, kind of walk the president uh, of the United States through and why did I print it I mean the sourcing on this is rock solid and you know the Right, the, the sort of counter to defamation is truth, and you know, I, I again, the, the the sourcing is rock solid. I knew it was accurate, so I, I, I printed it. And I think it's an important piece of the book in that this is a, a again a, a through line here. There are people around Trump from that point forward who are worried that he's long given a wink and a nod to these extremist corners of the Republican Party and the base in order to keep energy up within his base and, and to maintain the kind of support that he he has. All the way through to the end, when we get to closer to January 6th, and uh, I detail here in the book some, some conversations that General Mark Milley has with other people in the administration, worried that the people Trump is bringing in right at the end of the administration may have links to neo-Nazism. So these are the things that, that the people around Trump, you know, we all know the story of chaos of these four years, right? I mean, this is not necessarily a book about chaos. What, what struck me in the reporting of this book is people around Trump were, were worried not about the chaos, but that he'd become a danger to the country, that, that, that he, he'd become violent and reckless in his desperation to hold on to power. Two questions. One is, with all this exposure you've had to Trump, all the great reporting you've done, talking to dozens, if not hundreds of people um, who are in the inner sanctum there, what did you learn about Donald Trump that you didn't know before? That's the first question. And the second question is, do talk a little bit more about the people you talked to, the people who you reported on, who at the end there seemed truly terrified of what Trump was capable yeah. of. Is that because of his sense of desperation and wanting to hold on to power? Or do you think he changed at all over time? Talk about that. But let, let me just start with that first question of what new did you learn about Donald Trump? Yeah, I know. I don't think he changed over time. And that is that, that is partly one of the things I learned about, about Donald Trump is, is that not only did I go back and re-report this last year, but I spent a lot of time um, going back and, and, and reviewing Trump's other flirtations with uh, running for office. Some things that, you know, there'd been so much news in 2016 and as president that I don't think really had gotten the kind of attention that would have with another candidate. Uh, some of these, uh, you know, past uh, moments and flirtations that would have been just dissected over and over and, uh, by major media, mainstream media, just, you know, were kind of here and gone because there was so much happening in the moment. And what, and what, I, and what I detail in the book is, is these are, Trump is the same candidate every time. He's the same person every time. And which actually convinces me that back then he was just dismissed almost out of hand as a provocateur, as a showman, as a, you know, as trying to, someone who's promoting his own book or his own show, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's that clear. I mean, I, I think he was seriously considering running in 2000 and in 2012, and it's all kind of of a piece for Trump. 
and because he's saying the same things and behaving in the same same exact way consistently all through, uh, all, you know, through, through over those uh, couple of decades. Now, I, w- what I learned new about Trump is, is some of the just how I mean, we saw I, mean, I say glimpse, but we saw it very viscerally in the Cleveland debate when he was, uh, you know, just I mean, it was I was in the room for that debate. And it was a different man than I had ever seen it. And I'd been, you know, and not in the room as many as much as other people's, but around the around the the people around him, but a lot. And I had never seen that man before. I'd never seen Trump behave like that before. Where just the constant, you, you know, shouting, interrupting. It, it was it was uh, it, you know it was disorienting in the room. And that's what was happening behind the scenes. And 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 what I learned knew, I guess, is that he, unlike 2016. You know, be careful with this, but you know, there's a certain charm to Donald Trump, right? I mean, he he's he 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 attacked just as much back then, but what was different that night in Cleveland was there was none of the he wasn't funny at all, right? Like it was again, like I mean, he he usually attacks with some kind of mocking, right, or nicknames where you know, kind of draw a laugh and 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 has that way to go after people that that leaves you kind of feeling less like a, he, he left people around, people around him worried that he came off as too much of an asshole that night. I mean, to put it just frankly there. And that's what was happening behind the scenes. He, he felt like he had, he had something to lose this time. The, the rug was kind of being ripped out from underneath him. He felt uh, by COVID, the economy, the Floyd protests, and he was, he was lashing out in a way that, uh, you know, again, that, that, that made people feel like he, he, he'd grown unstable. I mean, he was telling his top military advisors and uh, senior administration officials to shoot Americans, people who are peacefully protesting uh, civil rights abuses. His secretary of state was worried he, that the president might lean into an international conflict to hold on to office. These were the, the, the shocking details for me in reporting this book, even after a front row seat for four years. His Secretary of State, uh, Pompeo, says, as you report, the crazies have taken over, toward, mm-hmm. re- referring to the end. But I want to ask you, look, as dangerous as Trump was and as crazy as the things he says, he does have this fanatical base that sticks mm-hmm. with him no matter what. And you mm-hmm. did something interesting in the book. You start out talking about these folks, the front mm-hmm. row Joes who go around from rally to rally so they can sit in the front row of uh, mm-hmm. uh, listening to Donald Trump. And so I guess, you know, the, the question is, like, what is it? that has created this fanatical fan base of Donald Trump? What drives these people and how is it that all the craziness doesn't change or influence their thinking at all? Yeah, I I appreciate that. I do think this is, I I try to do, there's so many Trump books, right? And like I cover the guy every day, wrote 1100 stories about Trump for the Wall Street Journal, right? Like I don't want to read another Trump thing that I already know. And, And I feel like I know, a lot of it, uh, too much. I, I know too much, um, so I, I, I try to present this in a new way. And you know, every chapter I try to get some, you know, give people a reason to read this. And what I think this book does that no other book before it has, or I think will, is come out of three ways: from inside the room of the White House, you know, behind the scenes of the campaign. And I spent two years effectively embedded with these front row Joes to understand why it was, what, what it was about them, and and what they saw in Trump that they wanted to see thirty. 40, and I mean, it, it's, I'm not exaggerating here, more than 50 rallies 
And, you know, what I found is, uh, yeah, I try to understand the humanity a little bit of, of this. And these are people who, you know, have time on their hands, right? Uh, they're re retirees or, or almost retirees. They're maybe never had kids or estranged from their families. And suddenly they have a little community here, right? The uh, other people who they are, they see it, see it, the, see at the show and, you know, split a hotel room with, uh, or, you know, stayed at each other's house on the road. And, um, in a way that made their lives richer and bigger than they were before. But what we see, you know, and what I detail through the book here is, is how they're misled by the man they put their faith in and trust in and political hopes in. You know, when it comes to COVID, one of the rally goers dies in March, right? And there's this moment, I'm, I go to the, they invited me to the Zoom memorial. There's a moment where there's a sense of, you know, a remorse or a sense of reality, really. That, that this thing is real and they pray for each other and they pray for the country and they pray for the hot zones in around the country at that point. But then a few months later, they're, they're blaming, you know, Trump's political rivals for, for their friend's death. So, so does it ever, do you ever see where it shakes their faith in Trump at all? Any event? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a good question. And why I think this is, remains important. I mean, I, there was part of me that was, felt like I was kind of documenting this history and this movement in a way that hadn't before, but but now I feel like it's really, uh, really relevant right now because we still have, I mean, there's still thousands of people showing up for his rally in Ohio last month and in Florida this month. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's important to figure out what is, why they're coming now, right after January 6th, like forget about the, the when it was, it raised the question with me because I, I wouldn't think this is the same show every single time. Like why are these people coming to see a rerun you know, uh, they know what they're going to get. But now it's, you know, the, after what happened on January 6th, after more than 500 people have been arrested for their role in this, why has that faith still not been shaken? And I think the answer is, and I, I went to Ohio, I went to the rally to talk to him and, and to, you know, start to figure this out for uh, more stories to come. And I think, I mean, I started to see some cracks. I really did. I mean, there was a, a, a couple arguments between them when I was start, started to put questions to them about what happened that day, about who's to blame, right? Like they, they, they there was one per, one of them who, who thought that it, the front row Joes were, the people that I focused on were not in the building, to be clear. No one that I had, you know, there was one woman who was outside and marched and ended up outside the Capitol, but no one that I can tell broke any laws in the moment. But one of the people thought that it made them all look bad. Right, that 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 these, and which is true. I mean, there were uh, 75 million people voted for Trump. A very small percentage of that stormed the Capitol, right? But it, it it can paint an entire movement, or you know, and and she was right about that. But I, and I and I thought that that showed. I mean, that was the kind of a sort of acknowledgement of a certain reality that I wouldn't have seen from them uh, six months ago or a year ago. Another man left the rally early because of, he felt like they had just that it just kind of gone off the rails and there was too much lack of a, of a reality happening around him. Um, and I, I mean, again, these are a couple of people in a crowd of thousands, but I would not have seen that a year or so ago. So I, I, I think it's going to be interesting, it's interesting to see as we move into 2022, what that movement looks like. So moving to a different group of Trump supporters, which is the, mm -hmm. the, the call of the elected officials from, from the Republican Party um, yeah. or members of Congress. 
it doesn't feel like we're seeing comparable cracks in them. In fact, it, it seems like there's kind of a, a doubling down amongst mm-hmm. many of them. How much is Trump today working the phones and working to shore up his leadership of the Republican Party? Well, we just saw this week Kevin McCarthy go down to Mar-a-Lago, and uh, we're still waiting for some details to come out, more details to come out, out of that meeting. But I would be shocked if, like, the January 6th commission didn't come up, you know, and it, regardless of what did come up, I mean, that uh, I think that's, you know, goes starts to answer your question there of, of uh, of how involved he is. I mean, he's on the phone constantly with Rick Scott, who's in charge of uh, Senate campaigns. McCarthy's another one. I think he's very, very involved still and, and, and stays in contact with these folks. And I think it's mostly the other way, right? I think these are these people want to keep Trump involved because as much as like, and there's, there's a disturbing segment of the Trump base that believes Trump won, right? I mean, there's no other way to, to say that. The people around Trump who are the elected officials They know that that's not true. They know that's a lie. But they also think that Trump might be onto something here, that using election security issues as a way to energize the base, you know, there might be something to that. So I think they're going to be pretty hand in hand here over the next couple of years. Michael, you you have a great line in the book where you say Trump's shamelessness was his superpower, Mm -hmm. um, which seems to me is kind of a key kind of characterological insight into Trump. Talk about how that was in some ways the key to his success. And I kind of wonder, uh, just picking up on what you were saying before about other elected office holders in the Republican Party, seems like a lot of them have kind of picked up on that. I'm just interested in that as a sort of psychological factor that drives him. Yeah, for sure. Um, It was something that, you know, it was something that Jared identified early with Trump, you know, and looking back, it's it's sort of easy to, to see now or, or to identify that as, as an, how much of a advantage that was for Trump when he was willing to say, you know, attack John McCain for, for being captured. I mean, you know, who would even think of doing that, let alone that it would, you know, not cost him things, right? That he was willing to say and do things that other politicians wouldn't. He gave him a, an advantage in this kind of like in, in this political atmosphere. And, you know, I, I think what happens is that we see that run its course in a real uh, violent and um, unfortunate way by January 6th, by his willingness to just toe this line that the election was stolen, which again is one of the shocking things to me. And I, I try to detail it toward the end of the book here is that you know, people confuse that sort of shamelessness with his with, with sort of like a, or or tied it to outbursts, right? And, and the fact that Trump wasn't screaming at people and foaming at the mouth in the weeks after the election, the days after the election was called, had somehow given folks like Mike Pence, Ronald McDaniel, the sort of false sense of security that, that Trump was going to find his own way to, his own path to uh, concede and just give him some time and give him his own space and he'll get there. But what we saw is that giving him space only opened the door for people like Rudy Giuliani and, and Cindy Powell to come in and, and tell Trump exactly what he wanted to hear. And, you know, we saw the results of that. At the end of the day, a lot of the key players did have their kind of breaking point. I mean, Pence, and then you mentioned Ronald McDaniel. Um, I think you have an anecdote there where Trump's wanting to push out these bogus election yeah. fraud claims out of Michigan. And she asks around about it and, and ultimately 
says, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in front of Trump, this is crazy and I'm not doing it. It's not true. Yeah, tells him that. Yeah, on the phone with Mike Pence on the line as well. Yeah, I mean, she had gone from, uh, you know, thinking, I mean, she, you know, she had conversations with Trump in those first few days that about running for a third term, right? I mean, she wanted to be part of the, the movement moving forward um, and thought everything was in a good place and then becomes alarmed when folks like Jenna Ellis start getting elevated and, and Rudy Giuliani starts pushing some of the stuff. And yes, and, and this is also how she kind of sort of uh, justifies it in her own mind as well, right? That she, she does run it, run it down. Uh, she checks it out uh, and tells Trump no, that she, you know that he can't use the RNC for this kind of bidding, which is you know in this context in Trump world is you know admirable, but that's where you know that's where it stops. It, it, you know, and kind of like you know let the White House do its thing now. You know, which is what you saw a lot in Trump world is right, and she doesn't quit and she doesn't say anything publicly. Exactly right, and that you know when there's when it's it not. I mean, there was time for blame or when things got tough, a lot of people, you know, faded into the background. But when it was, came time to, you know, take credit for things, there was no shortage of. Michael, for all your tough coverage, you get offered a exclusive by the Trump campaign in the last few weeks of the election about Hunter Biden's laptop. And they're going to give you this what the, what they hope to be a bombshell story about um, the Hunter but what's on Hunter Biden's laptop. They even let you talk to this former business partner of his, Tony Bobolinsky, who has some interesting mm-hmm. things to say. Walk us through that and your wariness about reporting it at the time, but mm-hmm. then we do learn, in fact, at later on that. Hunter Biden is under criminal investigation by the Justice Department, mm-hmm. suggesting there's something there about Hunter Biden's activities. You know, just walk us through the story yeah. and how you decided to do ha- handle it the way you did and looking back on it from today's perspective. So I had gotten called uh, just a, couple, a few weeks out from the election that, uh, and this is because they had proof that Joe Biden was involved in Hunter's, uh, you know, dirty deal making, right? I mean, this at this point is the holy grail of in Trump world. Right? This is basically this is basically what gets Trump impeached the first time, right? And they, they and they don't give up on it for over a year. My kind of uh, rule of thumb in reporting is better to talk to people than not, right? And uh, you know, and I was willing to go, and and it was COVID, uh, and I wanted to, you know, it was an opportunity to like. Get out of my house and go go uh, look at you know, some evidence, uh, supposedly. So I went and and there was like I mean there were I knew there were going to be attorneys there, which kind of led me gave it some sense of credibility that you know most attorneys don't want to put their good standing and with the bar on the line for 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 these sorts of things. That used to be the case. Oh, yeah, they, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once yeah, was the fair. case, but go ahead. Fine. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, but at least go to hear him out. And and basically, what it, what it turns out is, it's not the story quite like they sold it, right? I mean, there are, it, it it's take a step back here. What it is, it what it is, is a fascinating look to me under the hood at the embryonic stages here of international deal making between two young, ambitious. And uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, uh, 
hard charging businessmen, right? Hunter Biden, uh, one and some, and some, and some Chinese officials in the other. And, uh, all these fabulous locales around the world where they're meeting, they're going, they're meeting up in, uh, they're doing a, apartment shopping in Manhattan, scheming about how to get one of the Chinese officials' daughters into a hard to get into private school in New York. You know, as a, as a Wall Street Journal reporter, I thought it was a fascinating business story, but not one that showed any wrongdoing or even involvement from Joe Biden. There was a, Joe Biden's name was brought up in some of these documents from other people. A reference to the big guy getting 10% of the equity in the joint venture with the Chinese and the big guy supposedly being Joe Biden himself. Right. But that didn't come from Hunter. It didn't come from Hunter's uncle. None of the family members are part of that. And it disappears in the final documents, right? It's part of a draft that someone else put together. And any mention of Joe Biden or this extra you know, shares of the company are, are, are gone. Uh, Hunter, at a couple of occasions, refers to the, the, my chairman or the chairman when he's trying, you know, it, it, when he kind of is lashing out uh, at some of his uh, colleagues. But that doesn't really, you know, the chairman kind of is clearly referencing his father. But, you know, I don't think there was ever a question that Hunter Biden's trading on the family name. I mean, he's been doing that for decades, right? I mean, he was a lobbyist in Washington, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, this is not, uh, and, and, you know, it was frowned upon, right? But like, this is not, you know, a major newsflash. You know, there was some times where, and, you know, I did meet Tony Bobolinsky at that point. They called, called, his, called into the meeting and he's telling me that he has firsthand knowledge that Joe was involved because, well, they went to a dinner. Okay, well, did you guys talk about the deal? He says, well, no, because uh, the other guys in the, in the company told me not to bring up business. Okay, well, did, uh, you know, did he say anything to you you know, and then he, he was there for a speech. Biden gives a speech, or speech, and, and Bobulinski is walking out of the out of the conference, and Joe Biden chases him down and uh, tells him that he made it clear that he wanted, you know, that he that he knew what was going on. Well, what did he say? He said, "Well, would you please look out for my son here?" And it's like, well, okay, like that. I guess that could be about his business, but he also could be like, you know, I mean, there's there's it's worth questions here, but it's not the smoking gun that these right. guys thought it was. I, I get that. I get that, but I guess my question is, sure. um, you know, there was obviously ferocious pushback from the Biden campaign in which they're suggesting all of this is Russian disinformation, right? Yeah. That's what they were publicly saying. Did you, I'd just be interested in yeah. your thinking when you heard them uh, the the counterattack from the Biden folks. And then secondly, when you learn well, he is under criminal investigation mm -hmm. for tax violations by the Justice mm -hmm. Department. You know, should the press have been more aggressive in reporting on all this? Right. Yeah. No, no. I mean, that's what I end up the story. Yeah. I mean, that's where this story story ends up with, with these guys in these documents is that I, I think it is worth a story. And I think it like Hunter Biden's like uh, what he was doing and what he was doing in China it, what was worth looking at. Um, and that's what I told him. I said, it's not a story about Joe Biden. Like, you don't have anything here that Joe Biden did anything wrong. But it is worth looking at what the son of a former vice president and a longtime senator was doing. And yes, like, I, I, I don't know that we're, you know, but like, that's not what, if that's what you want, if you want a story on Joe Biden did it, it you're not getting that from me. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to get that from the Wall Street Journal. 
And their, and their reply was, no, 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 no. It's to get to your other point here is, if you think there's any story here, we want you to pursue it. You know, we want the rigorous editing reputation of the Wall Street Journal to look at these things and say, you know, and if you say that there's a, a story here, their issue had been that the Hunter Biden stuff had gotten so tangled up in the conservative right-wing media that any mention of Hunter Biden was immediately dismissed as a conspiracy theory. And on that point, they're not wrong. And on that point, I mean, that's why, uh, for a big reason why, I mean, this is like Trump world in a nutshell, because while they're having this back and forth with me, Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani have the Hunter laptop, right, with a lot of these same documents in it that they bring to the New York Post and just drop the whole damn thing. And, you know, their because their theory of the case was different. Their theory of the case was that, like, there was no one that was ever going to give it this any uh, attention. So let's get it in, into the bloodstream on the right wing and use it to keep that energy up and try to turn the heat up there, where the folks I was dealing with wanted to try to get it into the mainstream, you know, into the bloodstream in the mainstream. And, you know, it just, what the two sides are not talking to each other. I'm certain that both sides are talking to Trump. And what happens is that Trump blurts it out that we're, that the Wall Street Journal is working on some big story you know, about Hunter Biden, which just like, just drops a nuclear bomb on everything. Because now the Wall Street Journal's in the position of like, do we look like we're doing Trump's bidding or do we look like we're being, you know, uh, you know, not doing the story because just because Trump said, and what ends up happening is we end up doing the story that, that my sources didn't want in the first place. We, they, it forces our hand to write a story in the moment that says there is no evidence that Joe Biden was involved. Right. I mean, when when the reality is we were working on a story about Hunter Biden's involvement, like what that was actually happening there. But would you would you have had it out before the election, which is clearly what they wanted? Right. Well, they wanted it out before the last debate. I mean, they want, you know, like, I, you know, and you know how this works. Like I had told them over and over, like, I can't tell you when it's coming. Like we have to we have, you want the rigorous editing and the rigorous reporting. Like we need to do that. And you we can't be we won't be you know, boxed in by your deadlines. You want to take it somewhere else? Fine. You want to take it back to the New York Post or Breitbart? Go right ahead, right? Like, this is what we're doing and this is how it A works. A small observation here that in light of the recent indictment of Weisselberg on tax charges, it's going to make it a bit more difficult for the Biden folks to dismiss an indictment of Hunter on tax charges if that's indeed where this is going to end up. Yeah, I, I actually think that this story, the Hunter story, is more important now that that, that Joe Biden won, uh, in in a weird way. So, and and I will say too that this is uh, I do give this this story in a lot of detail in first person in the book. Uh, is a whole chapter on you know and what ends up becoming, you know, I mean, even in the final days of the race, I mean, Trump is spending significant. I will go back and count all of the references to Hunter Biden. Um, that he makes in the final weeks. And, and meanwhile, on the other side, Joe Biden is saying nothing but COVID, 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 right. you know, which, which resonates a little more with the American public at the end of the day. Do you think uh, Trump's going to run in 2024? I'm not asking you to predict or prognosticate. But, yeah, you are. Uh, you just asked him if you think <laughs> he's going to run. That's exactly maybe, what well, you asked him. Maybe he'd fall for that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 or, 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 yeah, do you want me to say who I, if I want him to run? Uh, the, I, I don't know. I, the answer is I don't know. I don't think he knows. I know that he's being um, advised not to decide 
until after 2022, because there really is no benefit for him to announce uh, one way or the other right now. But, uh, you know, and again, I, I think this book is is important. I mentioned earlier because of this sort of examination of the, of the Trump base and where they're at and and just to start to understand where they're where they're at heading into this this next election cycle, but also for Republicans. Too. I mean, the party, the Republican Party here heading into 2022 has a very clear choice. This is their opportunity to define the party post-Trump and whether or not they're going to, you know, what they're going to decide there, I don't know. But I do know that this book and the framing I put on, on the issues we went through in 2020, there's no excuse to go into that tr- decision uh, with anything other than their eyes wide open. I got one final question because I something that in the book that I thought was just kind of astonishing. I guess you got a call sort of out of the blue in June of 2020 from the White House uh, asking if you can come down to interview the president. Yeah. So I guess you you throw on a suit, which you hadn't worn in (laughs) a year because of the pandemic. And you get down there and uh, the White House press secretary, Kylie McEnany, escorts you to the Oval Office. And did I read this correctly that then she left and left you alone in the Oval Office for 30 minutes? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there was so much bizarre of this. I mean, it was uh, this interview. You take any of the chachas I mean, I got to say, like, I mean, isn't that like a huge, like, security violation to leave a reporter alone in the Oval Office for that much time? And right, did you have, and what were, you must have been awfully tempted to take a closer look at the, uh, the Resolute desk and the papers that were there. I mean, I did. You know, I mean, I didn't stay, you know, like it was just sitting there right in front of me. Uh, it's not going to surprise you that there weren't really any papers out on the resolute desk. It was a stack of, uh, really, there was a stack of, of papers that were listed uh, Trump's accomplishments in office. And those are the papers on the desk. But there were like some, there was some cell phones that were left back there sitting on the seats and stuff. And it was uh, really bizarre. I mean, Dan Scavino uh, sort of shuffles through at one point and kind of says hi and, uh, you know, Mike Pence, you know, stops in and, you know, I will say he's a very, you know, what Trump would never do is ask me about my family and he knew I had a baby and uh, how, you know, how she was doing and asked me to come back on the road with them. And, and he left, you know, so uh, uh, there was part of me that was tempted to ask Pence to uh, shut the door on the way out, but I decided not to, <laughs> to do that. You should have uh, rifled through the desk and found all the PDBs and just like mm-hmm. collected them. And, uh, it's just like PowerPoints. Out. All it is right. is just a bunch yeah. of PowerPoints. All right. Anyway, um, the book is, frankly, we did win the election, which if you read, you'll discover is not exactly the case. Um, but um, I know, frankly, he did yeah. not win the election. Correct. I, I, sort of, I know it's uh, the subtitle, but I sort of think of it as one big, too long title, which is, frankly, we did win this election, the inside story of how Trump lost. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but it's good you were able to get Trump to speak frankly about uh, these sensitive issues. So uh, <laughs> congratulations on that. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Michael. Great book. Thank you.